Well, back when I was going to seminary and was a younger man, I was known as being a bit impulsive. I always preferred the word decisive, but when I look back at the evidence, I have to admit that many times the word impulsive fits. There's a time when I was going to seminary. My wife and I had almost no money. We'd just gotten married, and our biggest prayer at the time was that God would provide a stereo system for us to play our records on. Now, that might seem like a really kind of wild, big prayer request, but we'd both gone through college with big piles of records. We always had roommates who had the big stereo systems, and so we didn't have anything when we got married to to play them on. Since so many of you are under 25, records are these big floppy vinyl discs that you put down on a turntable, a needle comes down. Worked pretty good at the time. So I was driving uh, north through I-5, which is Bellingham. It's just below the border, going to school up in Vancouver. And as I was driving through I-5, an announcer came on the radio and said, the next person who showed up at what was then Dewey Griffin Honda would receive a free stereo system as part of a promotional giveaway. And I'm thinking to myself, God works in miraculous ways. We've been praying for this. I was literally just 100 yards from the Iowa Street exit where Dewey Griffin Honda was located. So I race off the freeway, go right up to Dewey Griffin Honda, jump out of my car, see the radio booth, come up and said, here, I'm, I'm here to get the free stereo system. So I'm so sorry, we just gave it away. But here's a record. What am I going to do with this? I mean, that's, that's the problem. I've got plenty of these. And, uh, you know, I'm feeling kind of frustrated, so I'm starting to walk away. And a salesman sees me, and he comes up and introduces himself and starts talking to me. And uh, I've always been a little bit of a people pleaser, particularly back then. And so I, I shouldn't have let the conversation go on as long as it did. But he was good at what he did, and he knew what I was doing and all of that. And so he said, well, I said, you know, I, I really didn't come here to buy a car. I was just hoping to get the stereo system. He goes, I know that, Gary, but before you go, there's something over here in the corner I want you to see. He brought me over to these stripped-down, brand-new Honda Civic hatchbacks. And he talked about how great gas mileage it got. He goes, you know, you're going to school up in Canada. He goes, you will save more money than you spend just on gas alone going to this model. And he talked about how well these Hondas were made. He goes, you really shouldn't look at it as a vehicle. It's more like an heirloom. You know, something that you could pass down to your children and grandchildren. The the best investment you can make. So I bought a car. (laughs) My wife, as you can understand, was horrified. Gary, let me get this straight. We can't afford a stereo system and you want to buy a car? So you don't have to put it that way? She said, why not? I said, well, when you put it that way, it makes you look stupid. It's like, well... But God worked on not just my mind in seminary, but hopefully also my heart. And so several years later, we moved back to the Seattle area. We'd moved out to the East Coast and we moved back to Seattle area. We'd sold all our cars. I was now a self-employed writer and speaker. I'd uh, just been there a couple of years, made sure, because I was in the Washington, D.C. area for a while, and I knew I could make a living at it. We moved back to the Northwest where we wanted to live. And because it was so expensive to move our cars and they weren't really in any kind of shape where you'd want to drive them cross country, we sold them. We were going to buy a brand new vehicle in the Seattle area. And I was so excited because I was thrilled that I was able to do what I felt God had called me to do and feed my family. And not just feed my family, I was actually going to be able to buy a brand new vehicle. Now, granted, it was a minivan. I never dreamed when I was 18 I could get excited about a minivan, but... I was excited that God had provided. And since I knew God had dealt with my impulsive nature, I went on the Internet, did all kinds of research, found the best one, went to a volume dealership in Seattle. I knew what every option should cost. I drove that thing off the lot, and I was just so grateful that God had provided this new car. It had the new car smell. Uh, You know, it had less than 15 miles on the odometer. I was determined to keep this thing up well and 
change the oil every 500 miles, you know, all of that stuff that you're thinking about when you get your first big new car. And just a few weeks after this, my wife came down to my study when I was working one morning, and she said, you know, Gary, the, um, the Smiths called this morning. I was talking to, to Mandy last night, and their parents are visiting from New Zealand, so they're going over to eastern Washington for the weekend, and they're having to uh, rent a van to go over there because their car isn't big enough. And I knew where she was going with this, and I was horrified at the thought. Because it seems silly to me that they should spend $300 to rent that van for the weekend, and we have this new van where we could just drive their Volvo for the weekend, and, and they could use ours. And I'm, I'm trying to think of every reason I can for it. Honey, they're going to eat fast food in it. It will lose the new car smell. They're going to double the mileage in a weekend. And, I mean, who knows how they treat cars in eastern Washington. I mean, just not sure it's really safe we let them take it over the mountains. It's just really a matter of stewardship here. I mean, this is the only car we have at the time. And what Lisa didn't know is that God had already set me up. I'd had my quiet time that morning. I've since learned it's safer to have your quiet time in the evening after your decision had been made. I hadn't learned that lesson yet. And this is literally the passage I'd studied uh, that morning from Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 45. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. So Lisa had the subjective leading of God's spirit. I had the objective truth of God's word. And yet still to my shame, I'm trying to come up with reasons why this is a bad idea. And Lisa had been married to me long enough to know to just let guilt do its work. And so she just let me sit there for a couple hours, came back. Gary, should I give him a call? Yeah, I couldn't think of a good reason not to. I said, yeah, go ahead. But my attitude was far from honoring the Lord. And so later that day, I was going for a run, and God brought this conversation to mind. We had a little dialogue about it, and I've got to make it sound like a dialogue so you can understand what's going on, but but you know how God speaks in a still, small voice, how He's interacting with you. It's like He's saying this, now Gary, you're saying if, if you had two or three vehicles, and you wouldn't miss your van for the weekend, you wouldn't have even thought twice about letting the Smiths use yours. Like, exactly, Lord, yes, I I knew you understood my heart with what was going on there. And if money wasn't an issue, you again, you, you wouldn't even think twice. Yes, that's exactly right. And then I believe God showed me the immaturity and selfishness and wrong-headed notion of my whole spirituality right then when I sent, could sense him saying, so what you're really saying, Gary, is that you're willing to act like a Christian as long as it doesn't cost you anything. And that showed the state of my heart, the state of where my faith was at that point. I was happy to act like a Christian. I was happy to read scripture as long as it didn't cost me anything. To show you how far my attitude was from scripture, you don't have to go far in the Bible. There's a case where King David had sinned. And because of his sin, God was sending an angel of death across Israel. People were dying, not by the tens, not by the hundreds, but by the thousands. David knows it's his fault. This is his sin that God is using, to, that, that is reacting to, to, to punish Israel. And then for some unexplained reason, the angel of death stops right outside the property of Arana the Jebusite. I want you to put yourself in Arana's situation. He, he sees the devastation going on. He doesn't really know the answer. But right outside his property, it stops. He's got to be sweating through his shirt saying, man, 
dodge that bullet. Then he looks off in the distance and there's the king in his chariot with some mighty men right around him coming up to his property. Never really been visited by the king before. But here's David. He pulls up his chariot, the dust billowing behind him, jumps out of his chariot, comes up to Iran and says, I'm, I'm so grateful that God has stopped the killing right here. I want to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving right on the spot where it stopped. And Iran could not have been more accommodating, somewhat understandable, given what he avoided. And so he's like... By all means, king, you know, do you need a place to do it? Take take my threshing floor. Do you need wood? Take the yoke from my oxen. Do you need animals? Here, take my oxen. You know, he could have also said, yeah, you will literally be burning up my livelihood. This is how I make my living. But look, I'm alive. My wife is alive. My kids are alive. Take it, king. They're yours. Now, if David had been an enterprising believer like me, he might have said to himself, this is amazing. God works in miraculous ways. I need to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God and it's not going to cost me anything. But that wasn't David's attitude. In fact, he says in 2 Samuel 24, 24, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So really, this presents two attitudes to a person of faith. I want you to look at both of them. There was my attitude. I'm willing to act like a Christian as long as it doesn't cost me anything. And there's David's attitude. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God something that costs me nothing. I'd ask you to just do a faith attitude adjustment. And the reason I think we need to do that is because we serve a God who is so kind and generous and merciful, who treats us far beyond anything that we would ever deserve on our own. We can get lulled into this thinking that that's what Christianity is. We give God our sin and he does nothing but give us blessing after blessing after blessing. And there's a truth to that. God does provide. He does heal. He comfort. He doesn't just provide the necessities. He blesses us. But scripture is just as clear that he gives us those blessings and many times asks us to sacrifice those blessings for the greater good of his kingdom. And that's what authentic faith is really about. That's what I wrote authentic faith. It was really, I was beginning to see, particularly in the United States, this self-centered spirituality where it was about the more I become faithful to give over my sins, the more I become faithful in scripture and ministry, then life becomes easier. God blesses me. I, I never would have fallen. I don't think you would fall here to that prosperity gospel uh, heresy. But there's a cousin to that line of thinking. You know, if I'm really faithful, God will at least round the corners. I might get sick, but not terribly sick. I might have some financial troubles, but not anything like bankruptcy. And yet, if we think that that's the case, what do we do with the person of Jesus, who was the most faithful in his devotions, who was perfect in his obedience to the Lord, and yet who suffered the most torturous death of any man who ever lived? And then we have the Apostle Paul, who tells us in Romans 12, 1, to offer our bodies as what? living sacrifices. See, Paul's pictures, we come to Jesus and it's not like we give him one thing and our faith and then we stop. It's like we are to look at ourselves as living sacrifices. That's what begins to define what an authentic faith is. 
And so if we're going to, to, to walk into this maturity, if we're going to walk into an authentic faith, we have to learn to hear God's footsteps, not just in prosperity or affluence, but in those difficult times. I had an experience when I was a, a younger dad that, that really challenged me in this regard. Our youngest daughter, Kelsey, uh, virtually came out speaking from the womb. Um, she has been talking her entire life. I'm sure she has said more words at 20 than I will say if I live to be 100. She, she would exhaust people when she was a little girl. I remember somebody from our church one time gave Kelsey a ride home. And um, I opened up the door, and I'll never forget this woman just looking at me, exhausted, saying, wow. And, and even Kelsey's little friends sometimes would ask her, Kelsey, do you ever stop talking? And Kelsey's response was, why would I? Talking's my spiritual gift. And she would go on. And... <laughs> In fact, one time when I was traveling, I was talking to Kelsey on the phone, and the signal dropped. And so I, I waited a minute and called back, and the line was still busy. So I waited a couple more minutes and called back, still busy, called a third time. The line is still busy. Finally, my wife had to fill me in when I finally reconnected with Kelsey what had happened. She heard Kelsey scream and she ran down. She says, Kelsey, what is it? She goes, I've been talking to dad for like 20 minutes. All of a sudden, this lady comes on the line and says, if you'd like to make a call, please hang up and dial again. She says, all this time, I've been talking to myself. You know, and Kelsey, this is a really big thing. And so I got back on the phone. It was so funny because she was so businesslike as a little girl. She was like, all right, Daddy, now now what were we talking about when the signal dropped? And I told her, she goes, oh, man, I could never remember all that. But I got lots more. And she goes on. And <laughs> it's, it's one thing for me to try to describe it. It's another thing if you actually can hear it. So I have a message she left me. She's about eight or nine years old. It's a very simple message. The message she had asked me earlier to pick up a pair of shorts that she needed and she found the shorts, so she didn't need me to bring them anymore. She could have said that in about 10 seconds. You're going to find out why it takes Kelsey 90 seconds to give that message. Hi, this is Kelsey, and forget about the message I just said, because I dipped on yellow shorts, and I just remembered that they're actually kind of orange And so I called them oranges, yellow shorts. But I found them, and I said, Mom, this needs to give me a call. So forget about the other message. Forget about this message, too, because I know I'm probably just bothering you. But anyway, you can turn it off right now if you want, because you don't have to listen to my Twitter chat out. But anyway, forget about the other message, because I found it. And now I'm going to wear one of my short shirts and don't. And um, so if you find... I know you want me this message first, but also what gives you this message first, so you're not to bother about the other message. Anyway, so I just going to wear my shirt and the sword. So that is a message from Kelsey Elizabeth Thomas, Royal Queen of Australia. I mean, <laughs> Washington, Washington. Ah, that was my Kelsey. And if you didn't get half of that, it, it takes lots and lots of training. So don't, there's nothing wrong with your ears. 
What didn't surprise me so much about her tongue even more was her ears. Because one time when we had moved into a new community, she's just making some new friends. Um, I was speaking at a church down in, in Seattle. And uh, Kelsey wanted to know when I was going to be back. And she was young enough to where I wouldn't give her a time. I'd give her an event. So don't worry, Kelsey. I'll be back in time to tuck you in. She goes, good. Okay, you're going to tuck me in. Well, the meeting went too long, and I didn't think I'd quite make it back for bedtime, so I called my wife and said, hey, I, I ran a little bit late, but I promised Kelsey I'd tuck her in. Can you keep her up until I'm home so I can tuck her in, because I promised I'd do that. She said, well, actually, she's spending the house the night at her new friend Jenny, or Laura's house. And I'd never been to Laura's house. Um, Lisa had met their parents and, and had been there, and so I said, well, tell you what. Call them, tell them I'll go tuck Kelsey in there, but I want it to be a surprise and a secret. So have them not tell Kelsey, just give me the directions to the house and I'll pull up. She said, okay, fine. So I, I pull up and they saw me pull up and they opened the door so I wouldn't have to ring the doorbell so it could be a big surprise. And I walked down the hall. They showed me what door it is. I opened it up expecting to surprise Kelsey by getting to tuck her in. She's already sitting up in bed, has this huge grin on her face. She goes, hi, daddy. I said, Kelsey, did, did they tell you I was coming here? She goes, no, but I heard your footsteps coming down the hall. And then I remembered you said you were going to tuck me in, so I thought he must have decided to come here because that's where I am to tuck me in. And I, I couldn't believe that she, apparently all those nights when I'm walking back and forth, when she's been tucked in, she'd become so familiar with what my footsteps sound like, the rhythm, the cadence, the way, I don't know what it was, that even in a house when she's not expecting it, at a time when she wouldn't expect it, she heard those footsteps and says, those are my dad's footsteps, and he's come here for me. I remember leaving and I said, Lord, that's the attitude I want to have for toward you as my heavenly father, that I will hear your footsteps even in seasons and in places and times where I don't expect to see them. It might be seasons of sacrifice. It might be times of suffering or the hallways of sickness. But let me become so familiar with your footsteps that, that I pick them out and that I'm faithful. I believe that's what an authentic faith is. And that's the faith that Jesus talked about. He clearly warned his disciples with a clear promise. In this world, he says, you what? Will have trouble. That is as direct a promise, people, as we can find. Now, I've never seen it in a Bible promise book, to be honest. I, I, I've never seen it at a refrigerator magnet. You know, or, or heard a preacher on TV saying, Lord, I'm claiming this promise. My life has been too easy. I haven't really had any trouble this month. But by faith, I believe uh, your word will come true. <laughs> and, the, and the disciples not only tried to not try to downplay this, they accentuated it. It was their expectation. They said in Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. They said they use this to encourage each other. So we don't want you to be surprised but God's footsteps take us through those places. And I found in, in, in a pastoral situation how important it is for us to know this before we get into the times of disappointment or suffering that people recognize this is to be expected. Because otherwise they're caught by surprise and they miss what God might be doing. John Calvin put it this way, and it was so strong. I don't have it on a slide here, but he just says this. All those who regard their troubles as necessary trials for their salvation, not only rise above them, but also turn them to an occasion for joy. 
And I wish I'd put it up so you could see his language. But he said necessary trials. It's not something that is occasional for some of us. He says we can't grow any other way. And when he's doing that, he's just really talking about the words of Paul in Romans 5, 3 through 5, when Paul says this. We also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint us. Paul valued character. And I think when I look at the classics and when I look at Paul, the ancients valued their holiness. Today's Christian seems to value their salvation. And that makes all the difference. We just want to get in. We just want to know that our eternal destiny is secured and this bit about spiritual formation, let's not take it too serious. This whole point about character and and holiness, maybe that's taking a little bit too far for those who want to enter graduate school Christianity, but, but let's not take it too seriously. That wasn't the faith of the ancients at all. In fact, when you look at James, he says something so similar. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, many in the church today might call it, consider it pure attack, brothers, when you face trials of any kind. We're going to just look for Satan's footprints behind it, never God's. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then Peter, in first one in. 1 Peter 1.6, these trials have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. Now, I, I could go on, but I chose these three in particular. When you're looking at the pillars of the early church post-Jesus, I mean, Paul was the leader, of course, in the Gentiles. James was the undisputed leader of the church in Jerusalem. If we were all Christians in the first century, we would think of James as our main leader. Peter is a rock upon whom Jesus said he would build his church. You've got Paul to the Gentiles. They're speaking with near... It sounds like they're copying each other. The point I'm trying to make is this is not proof texting. This is how the early church looked at troubles and trials and struggles that God uses them to bring us to maturity, to bring us to completeness. That an authentic faith doesn't mean that you become so connected to God that you have a life free from troubles, but instead that you have a life filled with faith in the midst of troubles. There's really no other way that God can use us in that sense. When I was in college, there was a young man that I looked up to. He was about three or four years older than me. His name was uh, Mike Dittman. And i got to be honest, as a freshman entering college, he was everything I wanted to be. He was charismatic. He was a great musician. He would put on uh, evangelistic concert. He was a fantastic athlete. He must have looked pretty good because he never had a problem with girls. Uh, he, he was a great Christian counselor. So many times he would lead me through situations. He understood God's word. He was a gifted worship leader, not just as a performer, but he would invite a whole community into worshiping God. And it, it seemed like he had the whole package. Uh, we knew he wasn't perfect. He actually had to go through premarital counseling twice before he was able to get married. Um, what, what happened is that he went through the first one with Diane, and there's another couple, uh, Pam and Brian in that class. And as they were in that group class together, uh, Mike decided he liked Pam's answers better than Diane's. And Pam decided she liked Mike's answers better than Brian's. So they broke up, 
And then they got together and they went through the same class again together this time. So for you singles, if you're doing premarital counseling, you might really think about that, that sometimes one-on-one with the pastor might be a little bit better. But um, that, that was just sort of Mike's way. And, and when he graduated from college, we knew God would have big things in store for Mike. And he seemed to go well. He went on, he got his master's, and he got a PhD in counseling. He went to, um, I mean, God was just really using him. But then he was at a church where there were some godly older men that loved Mike enough to speak the truth. I said, Mike, we got to be honest. You're just you're charismatic. You're dynamic. The room comes alive when you enter it. But you know, you can be a little harsh. Sometimes you don't realize that what you're saying could actually hurt rather than encourage. And they went through this, and because he is a godly man, Mike took their words to heart. And what cut him to his feet was that he realized that everything they were praising was a human attribute. You're dynamic. You're you're charismatic. And he found himself praying, Lord, I, I wish I was a little less dynamic and a little more compassionate. I wish I was a little less charismatic in the human sense and a little more charismatic in the Holy Spirit sense where I'm opening up to your work in my life. You ever hear that old adage, be careful what you pray for? It wasn't that long after that that Mike was playing basketball. Brain aneurysm exploded in his head. He drops to the floor. Probably would have died, but there was an EMT, an emergency medical technician right there that was able to keep him alive. They got him to the hospital, and he was there for weeks. And the man who came out of that hospital was very different than the man who had laced up his basketball shoes that day. I don't know if you're familiar with an aneurysm, but it's pretty much like a stroke, and it has stroke-like symptoms. Uh, Mike lost everything. Those Hollywood handsome looks now were gone. His face, it's kind of hard to describe, but it sort of fell, so it was stretched here, and then his mouth was a little bit over here. He couldn't ever play sports again. That's, that's been gone. He couldn't play his guitar again, which if you knew Mike as a younger man, that was his life. He loved his guitar. It's still, it's still painful to him. Decades later that that part of his life is gone. And then it took him months before he could learn how to speak. And even today, if he gets too tired and talks too much, you can hear a little bit of a slur come back in. In short, Mike was humbled in about every way it's possible for a charismatic, gifted young man to be humbled. And I remember going back. After that, he went on and he established a counseling program that didn't exist in Philadelphia that had hundreds of students by the time he left. He's often known as the kind of counselor where when Christian leaders get in trouble, they'll fly in and deal with Mike one-on-one. He's just so gifted talking to people one-on-one. And he told me, Gary, you can keep trying to reach the groups. I just feel like I'm called to reach people individually. The first time I got to visit him after the aneurysm happened, it was a sobering time. I happened to be in the Philadelphia area, so I called him. We got together. And just looking at him, it was... He was a different man. But we got right back into our friendship. We spent a couple hours together. And, and I'll never forget calling my wife that evening. I said, Elise, I got a couple hours with Mike today. And I said, you know, when I was in college, I used to think, I want to be like Mike. This was before the Michael Jordan commercials. At that time, I said, I mean, be like Mike is be like Michael Dittman. I said, after spending time with him this evening, when I left, I didn't, Say, I I wish I could be more like Mike. I said, my heart was, 
Lord, I, I want to be more like Jesus. Can you help me be more like Jesus? So when I'm with someone, that's what they hunger for is him. And I realized what had happened is that God had stripped away everything that impressed people about Mike. His looks, his dynamism, his character, his speaking, his music, his athleticism. And, and what was left out of that was a heart of compassion where you were impressed with the presence of Jesus in his life. And his goal was to help you connect with Jesus. Where is Jesus leading you today? What is Jesus speaking to you today? And can I just say to so many of you at the start of your life, at the start of your ministries, look, the numbers of people who can hold the crowd spellbound, they have the hair, they have the voice, they have the mannerisms, they have the humor. They're, they're a dime a dozen for everyone that individually can meet people and genuinely create a hunger and a passion and a thirst for the presence of Jesus Christ. What do you think the church today needs more of? What kind of ministry do you think God wants to give you? Now, I hesitate a little bit in saying that because the road to get there might be severe. We come into this world arrogant, egocentric, selfish, ambitious, wanting to make an impression for ourselves, not for our God. It's painful to have that blown away. But that's where I believe faith becomes authentic. How does God take us as ambition, ambitious, arrogant, self-centered people? He breaks us. The problem is we don't think we need to be broken. We want an explanation. If God lets one bad thing happen, God has to explain himself. And yet he has all throughout scripture. He did in Jesus saying, in this world you will have trouble in the book of Acts. Paul in Romans, James and Peter in their own epistles. Finally, a little bit later as a dad, I had an episode with my son that helped me see this from God's perspective. My boy is 23 now, works in Manhattan, but he was a really active little boy when he's just about three or four. He's running around downstairs. He tripped and he hit his head on a fireplace. It opened up his skull. I could see his skull. I mean, he just split it. I knew he's going to need stitches. So I wrap him up, rush him to the hospital. They took a look at Graham. They saw the state he was in, so we didn't have to wait in the room. They took us right in there. And they knew they're going to have to stitch him up. And so they had this ingenious thing. It's like a straight jacket stretcher kind of thing where they strap him in so they can't move. I looked and I thought, man, I wish they sold those in the hospital store when an active boy, it could have come in handy. And so the doctor put him down and he got out the needle and Graham saw what was going to happen and he, he couldn't move his head. But I was down looking at him and with, you know, those little toddler eyes, he had big blue eyes that are just outsized like they are in toddlers. And he starts pleading with me and this may have been one of the most difficult moments in my life. He said, Dad, don't let him do this. Dad, please, he's going to hurt me. Dad, make him stop. Don't let him do it. Now, now, Graham was really into me as a toddler. I'm the one he ran to when he was scared. If he was hurt, he would run right into my arms. You're the guy. You protect me. I told him I'd be there for him. And then he's looking at this stranger with a needle in his hand about to put it into his head. He's saying, what's up with this, Dad? You're not going to let him do this. You can't be serious. I mean, I, I know you're not a very big guy. I think you can take him, all right? It's, it's worth a shot. You know, show me you're my dad. 
And what tore me apart is there was no way with his understanding I could make my point. I couldn't say, bud, you're you're three years old. You think girls have cooties, but the day's going to come, 18, 19, you're going to want to invite one out to dinner. It's not going to help you have a flap of skin hanging over your lap. You're going to thank me if we take care of this. I couldn't say, you know, again, there's these things called germs. You could get infected. It's right by your brain. You could die. He didn't know biology. He didn't understand romance. He said, I have a dad. I think he can take this guy out and he's letting him hurt me. What's up with this? And I saw the betrayal in his eyes. And I couldn't explain to him, Graham, this has to happen. It ripped me up. Now imagine if there was another dad, another man that wanted to be Graham's dad on the other side of Graham, whispering into his ear. See, Graham, I told you your dad doesn't love you. How could he love you if he lets some guy you don't even know stick a needle in your head? This is going to hurt. Look, come with me. I'll take you off this table. I'll take this guy out. We'll run away right now. You don't have to go through this. Just, just get rid of your dad. I'll be your dad. Come and follow me. Every time you go through a trial, that's kind of happening. You have a spiritual enemy who's whispering to you, does God really love you? How could a God let your heart be broken like that? How could a God who cares about you allow a relative to go through that? How does a God who is able to heal not heal you when you ask Forget this, God. Come with me. I've got something better for you. And we've been told in Scripture, this is what authentic faith is. And if we don't embrace those Scriptures, if we don't ingest those Scriptures and let them become our definition of authentic faith, when we're in those moments on that table, we'll listen to those whispers and we'll curse the only God who really does truly love us and save us. We'll all have these moments of sacrifice and surrender that God calls us to. They'll either make us calloused or they'll make us like Christ. We'll grow in God or we'll grow in bitterness. We're going to grow in God or we're going to grow in bitterness. Let me conclude with this. A lot of you are saying in your scriptures, you know this. What happened on that piece of property that Arana used to own, that David offered his sacrifice? What took place there? where the temple was built on that place of sacrifice where David said I'm not going to give a sacrifice to God that cost me nothing that's where Solomon's temple was built this is where worship begins in our life in those moments of sacrifice Christianity was birthed in sacrifice we're called to offer ourselves as living sacrifices that's authentic faith according to scripture let's pray Father, I don't know if the trials have already hit or if they're coming. I don't know where each person is at here. But I pray that you would take these scriptures. I pray that you would take these truths and, Lord, just plant some protection in our hearts and minds so that when we have the opportunity to be refined, to be used, to become the people you've called us to be, Instead of growing in bitterness, we will grow like your son. 
Father, may we embrace a truly authentic faith. It's what we're created for. It's what gives us the most joy. It's what brings the most glory to you. Pray that that might happen in Jesus' name. Amen.